1 Corinthians 1. And let's just go ahead and pray, and then we will kind of walk our way through this passage this evening. Father, thank you for the church and for all of your people. And while part of us might wish that the Corinthians were better behaved, we are grateful for this lengthy set of instructions about how saved people ought to live. Help us to achieve that ideal. And I pray your blessing then upon our time together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we had worked our way up to verse number 9, and at this point in the letter, Paul turns his attention to the main subject matter. He has been grateful for them, genuinely grateful for them as saved people. One of the guys said to me after the service, pointing out the contrast in tone between Galatians and Corinthians, is that if you're right on salvation... You can fix most of the other stuff, and if you're wrong on salvation, as the Galatians were, there's no fix for anything. And so, even though these people are, well, let's just use the word Paul uses, carnal. He, he never calls them lost, which is something that he, he doesn't call the Galatians, but he raises the question with the Galatians. I question whether your salvation is genuine. But he does call the Corinthians carnal. And when we get to that passage, we'll take a little bit of time talking about whether or not there is genuinely a category of carnal Christian. I don't think so. There are believers and unbelievers. But it is possible for believing people to act like unbelieving people. And that is what was happening with the Corinthians. And now then, beginning in verse number 10, right? he has explained to them in the very first part of the letter, that they are God's church, that they are called to be a holy people, that they are to be a sacred people in the midst of a profane world. And that's kind of Old Testament language, but that's really part of the thing that God was doing in teaching the Jews the difference between the sacred and the profane was that they were sacred in a profane world, and they were not to become profane like the world around them, but were to be sacred, always sacred. And then he is thankful for them. And now he begins to deal in earnest with the issues. And you probably know that Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, just sort of walks through a variety of problems and are solving, are addressing those problems and solving them those problems biblically. <clears throat> the first set of problems <clears throat> that Paul undertakes, and those that runs all the way through chapter 6, seem to be problems that Paul is made aware of by the house of Chloe, and we will talk about that. He talks about the fact that the house of Chloe has informed him of some things and he's going to tackle them. And then the second set of questions seem to be, at least this is where how Paul identifies them, beginning in chapter 7, 
are responses to questions that he has been asked. So the church at Corinth has written Paul and said, we would like your input on these issues. And Paul, in the meantime, has found out about some other things going on that they did not identify, and he starts by saying we need to talk about them. The first subject that Paul tackles is, of course, the one that we are going to just begin to get into tonight. And with reference to the content, the subject matter begins in chapter 1 and verse number 10 and runs all the way through chapter 4. So about half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, and chapter 4 are dealing with the same subject matter. And the subject matter is this, God's preachers. So three and a half chapters of the first four, introduction to the book, and we're off and running, and what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about the right way for a body of believers to think about the preachers that God places in their life. It's just almost unbelievable that the Corinthians have a problem about this or that they have the nature of the problem that they are having but it is very large in the mind of Paul and so he wants to tackle that first so here's what we're going to do we're going to pose three questions to the text and I'm going to ask the question and not really looking to have a conversation, but I'm going to ask you to, to look at the verse or the verses and try and come up in your mind with what the answer to the question should be. So let's begin first by looking at verse number 10. And from verse number 10, we will pose this question. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So if we were going to come up with one word that Paul wants for the Corinthians based on 1 Corinthians 1.10, what word would we come up with? Unity. Right? Absolutely. 100% beyond any question, beyond any shadow of a doubt, Paul wants unity. He appeals to them in verse number 10, by or through is the idea, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That not only Paul wants this, but that he is speaking with the assurance and confidence that the Lord Jesus wants this. He wants his people to be united. And he wants a unity that looks like this in verse number 10. Okay? That ye all speak the same thing. That you all speak the same thing. And I think, I'm not even going to get into this, folks, apart from this mentioning it. I think that we should understand, right, that Paul is not talking to them about things like what their favorite color is or what their favorite food is or what their hobbies are. Right? That's not the kind of unity that he's in the pursuit of. That, that everybody, okay, right? And I don't want to take all my time telling... <clears throat> Stories, but many, many, many years ago, um, <clears throat> a pastor friend asked me if I had any interest in going, and he and I went to Indianapolis to a Bill Gothard concert conference, not a concert, Bill Gothard conference. 
Um, <clears throat> and so we, we flew to Indianapolis, and we stayed. They were having it at a hotel. The Gothard people had bought this hotel and turned it into a conference center, and so all the rooms were there. And so they, 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 put us in, they put us in a room, and it was just he and I in a room. There was lots of room. And about 5 o'clock the next morning, piped through the speakers was some nice, mellow Christian music. And then about 5.15 or 5.30, it turned into more militant, get-out-of-bed Christian music, and it ushered us down into the kitchen. And then came the announcements. Um, we tried many things to turn the volume off, but they had anticipated most of them. And so <clears throat> we didn't feel that burning the building down was an option. But I would be lying if I said I hadn't thought about it. And uh, <clears throat> so we endured the announcements, and we got up, and we went down to the vegetarian breakfast that they served. And then in the first session, they spouted the wonderful attributes of this system and wanted every church to imitate it. They wanted me to come home and think of some way to broadcast into your homes the morning church announcements. And I just, so we found out, by the way, how did this all go? I'm just telling stories. We found out that there was another conference being held in Indianapolis, and so we went to it. Um, <clears throat> that was, so that was, that was my experience with that. Not that kind of unity. Everybody has to be a vegetarian. Not that kind of unity. Okay? He's, gonna, he's, he's got a specific idea in mind here of what he wants. But to go back to the text, right? I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, okay? that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, they'd hold to the same opinion and they would have the same purpose. So what Paul wants and what Jesus wants is for his people to be on the same page, we would say, about certain issues. Now this is not the characteristic that he encounters, what he finds going back to verse number 10, okay? that, she be, that there be no divisions among you, but that she be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now that word divisions is one of those Greek words that you know, that you probably have used, because we just took the Greek word and made it English. It is the word schism. That there be no schisms. In Matthew 9.16 and in Mark 2.21, when Jesus was talking about the nature of his ministry, and really the nature of the work of the cross of Christ in conjunction with the law, he said, no man puts new wine in old bottles. Because if it does, if you put new wine into old bottles, the old bottles can't withstand the pressure of the new wine. <clears throat> and there will be in our King James Bible, it is the word rent. But the Greek word is schism. There's a tear. <clears throat> there will be a tear in the wineskin. There will be a, a crack in the bottle from the excess pressure of new wine in an old bottle. In other words, what Paul sees is a church that is torn. What Paul desires is a church that is unified. And he wants this tear to be mended. Again, verse number 10, but that ye be perfectly 
joined together, mended, right? The division is already there. The, The hole in the fabric of the church already exists. It needs to be repaired. It's, it's too late to, to prevent it. Now it needs to be repaired. <clears throat> Again, Matthew and Mark both translate this word with, as mending. When Jesus encounters the disciples and they are mending their nets, they are repairing the schism in the net. And in Galatians 6.1, the man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore, mend him in the spirit of meekness. So there is a tear in the church. The church is divided. Paul wants them united and there needs to be a repair. So the answer to the first question is, what does Paul want? He wants unity. <clears throat> That brings us secondly to verses 11 and 12. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So now let's ask the second question. Of the passage. First question, what does Paul want? Unity. What does he have? Division. Second question, what is the nature of the division? Or where would he like the unity to occur? Well, if if we were trying to come up with one word to describe the nature of the division, what what might be a good word to use there? Look at verse number 12. What are we fighting about? Ministers, which are, let's let's simplify it even more, not only are they ministers, they are what? They're people. Right? What What is the current, where is this tear in the fabric of the church at Corinth? It is a division over people. They're fighting over people. And it is at this point in the letter that we're introduced to this mystery lady, Chloe. And if you go online or if you have commentaries on Corinthians, you'll discover that we don't really know who she is. And anytime people who write books don't know the answer to something, they start speculating. And so there's no end of speculation. Okay? There are a couple of reasonably educated guesses that we can make. We assume that, and there's a lot of discussion about this, we assume that she is a believer, but not everybody thinks she's a believer. I think she's probably a believer because they're expressing the kind of concern about what's going on at Corinth that believers would express. We assume that she has some level of affluence. And if you'll notice there, if you look at your King James Bible, 
in verse number 11 that there are a lot of italicized words because what Paul actually wrote is simply this, by them of Chloe. Which could possibly mean Chloe's children, but nobody really thinks of it that way. The assumption is that Chloe is a believer who has sent some of her household slaves or perhaps employees, but probably slaves, off on errands. She is not from Corinth. Paul is not in Corinth. But they have been sent to Corinth because it's a big industry center, a big business center. And when they come back, these, right? So, I mean, it'd be like, it would be like if somebody came to visit Westwood Heights Baptist Church on a Sunday or a Wednesday and they weren't from here and then they went back to their place and they gave to somebody a report about what they experienced while they were at Westwood Heights Baptist Church. And then one day we get a letter in the mail. And it says, these people were visiting your church and these are the things that they observed. This is what they noted. Now this, of course, has all the apostolic weight to it. So Chloe is evidently a believer of some substance who has sent some servants to Corinth for some business purpose who because they are believers have attended church at Corinth and they come back and they bring a report to Paul that goes something like this. That place is a madhouse. That place is an absolute madhouse. I know we know you started it. We know you spent a year and a half pastoring those people. But let me tell you something. That is a church in turmoil. And we know that, folks, because of the word Paul uses in verse number 11. It hath declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions. This is a word that only Paul uses. None of the other New Testament writers use this word. Only Paul uses it. It is translated in our Bibles with the word debate in Romans 129. Strife in Romans 13.13 and 1 Corinthians 3.3. Variance, Galatians 5.20. Strife again in Romans 13.13, Philippians 1.15, 1 Timothy 6.4. Contentions, Titus 3.9, Paul uses it, he's the only one to use it, and there's no good way to spin the word. This is a church that is at war. There is strife. They are fighting. They are debating. They are contentious. One word in secular Greek, one translation of the word contention in 1 Corinthians 1.11 in secular Greek is contest. It's contest. That's not our King James word, but I think that it pretty much captures the essence of what Paul is concerned about. And again, we come back to this. What are they fighting about? And the answer in verse number 12 is people. They're fighting about people. And here's what really that we want to note about this, folks, that we don't want to miss. They're fighting about good people. These are not bad people. Now again, if you go to the books and you go to the internet, you will discover that there is an endless set of questions and debates and speculations about what each of these people brings to the table. 
And we are going to spend exactly zero time entering into that debate because it's not the Paul's concern and he doesn't address it. Paul doesn't tell us how, for instance, in verse number 12, Paul is different than Apollos and Apollos is different than Peter. Paul doesn't care about that. We know that Paul doesn't care about that because he wrote chapter 3. But here's the point, folks. Paul is a good man. With all the standard stipulations that Paul is a sinner and he knows it. Apollos is a good man. Peter, or Cephas as he's called here, is a good man. These are good guys. And Jesus, of course, is the best good man, but some people are even fighting about being contentious about their identity with Christ. Do we see what's saying, right? I mean, he begins by saying, Jesus wants you united. We need to heal the rift. And we go, well, what doctrine are they fighting about? Well, they're not fighting about any doctrine. What contemporary issue are they fighting about? Well, they're not fighting about any contemporary issue. They're not fighting about whether there should be drums on the platform or not. They're not fighting about whether there should be neckties on the platform or not. They're fighting about people. And they're fighting about good people. And again, folks, from the use of the word contention, this is not low-key undercurrent. And we'll talk about this. This is not, Paul is not in a stew because some people in Corinth have a favorite preacher that is different than somebody else's favorite preacher. Paul is upset because the church is waging war over these men. They are drawing sides. Now, Paul doesn't address this here. I'm just going to, I'll just read you the verses and give you the references. You don't need to turn to them. But this is in part being fueled by their carnality. And whenever Paul uses that word carnal, he's talking about an unsaved mentality. We can get, you can get that from the book of Romans. There's where the great division is. Right? There, there's, the, there's the believer and there's the carnal man, the unbeliever. And Paul says, when you get like this, you're acting like unbelievers. This is what the world does. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men, not as believers, just lost people. Just a church that's functioning. He's not, he's not, he never accuses them of being lost people. He regularly accuses them of living like lost people. They're carnal envy, right? I, want, I got my guy and I want to advance my guy. And their carnal pride, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. These things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos. We'll get to what he's transferred for your sake, so that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Don't ever think more of any man than God has written about men. 
so that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Right? Because I got my guy, and my guy is better than your guy, and you're a loser for having your guy. And we're all fighting about good guys, who, by the way, to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all of them put together have the same numerical value, zero. They're all zero. They're all nothing. And that brings me to the last question, the longest section, and I'm going to pose the question, but I'll just go ahead and give you the answer and then see if we can figure out whether or not I'm telling the truth. Right. so verse number 10, we find out what Paul wants. In verses 11 and 12, we find out why Paul wants it, or we find out what the nature of the division is. That's the better question. And then in verses 13 through 17, we find out why this really matters to Paul. Why is this a big deal to him? What is at stake in a church divided over personality? What is at stake? Verse number 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. By the way, this is concrete proof that Paul was not a fundamental Baptist. Because all fundamental Baptists know how many they baptized. Verse number 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So here's the third question. What, what is the cost of this division? What is really at stake in this church that is fighting over good men. What is in peril? And the answer to that, folks, is given at the very end of verse number 17. Paul's not concerned about Paul. Paul's not really concerned from a, from a, a, from a popularity standpoint or from an accomplishment standpoint. Paul's not concerned about Peter. And he's not concerned about Apollos. Paul is concerned about Christ. And when all these people get together and they degenerate into a fight about men, the casualty is Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is concerned with. Paul didn't write to the church at Corinth and go, look, you guys are leaving a bad taste in the mouth of other believers. And he didn't write to them and go, you guys are tarnishing your reputation in the world. How, how are you ever going to get unbelievers to believe on Christ when you guys are fighting with each other about whether Apollos or Peter are the, the, guy, to, the guy to know? Paul went far deeper than that. Paul said, look, you guys, you guys are taking the power of the cross away in this fight over humanity. 
In order to reinforce his point, he poses three questions for the Corinthians to answer, folks. They're, they're kind of rhetorical questions, right? But, but here we are. Here's a church that is divided. There's a tear. And where are the tears? Where are the rips? Right? The rips are over Paul. I mean, can you imagine how Paul must have felt when those of Chloe came back and said to Paul, hey, we spent some time in Corinth. Because, you know, folks, nobody, makes a, nobody takes a flight into Corinth and, and leaves the same day. These are extended visits. We spent some time in Corinth, Paul. And you wouldn't believe what goes on in that place. And they're fighting about you. There's a whole faction in the church of Corinth that is flying the I'm of Paul banner. Paul could not be anything other than brokenhearted. So here is questions. Verse number 13. Is Christ divided? Now here he doesn't use the word schism. <clears throat> this is the kind of division that occurred <clears throat> Excuse me, when Jesus took the loaves and the fishes and broke them into little pieces and multiplied them. When you got saved, did you get your own little Jesus? <clears throat> That's kind of what he's asking them. Did you, get your, did you get your own little Jesus when you got saved? <clears throat> Is this what Jesus did when he died on the cross? He parceled himself out so that you could have a part and he could have a part and this faction could have a part and this faction could have a part and nobody ever needed to be in agreement because they all had their own Jesus. Is Christ divided? Question number two, was I crucified for you? And I think that you could take any of the personalities there, Peter and Apollos and Paul, and ask that question. Did, did I die for you? <clears throat> Why are you making much about me? I didn't die for you. I didn't go to the cross for you. Were you baptized in my name? And then Paul goes on to celebrate the fact that although he had personally baptized some, he was glad that he could not say he had baptized more, lest people would have come to that conclusion that, that there was the Pauline party in the church. That And look, folks, this should not come as any big stretch to us to think that somebody that had been actually baptized by Paul let everybody know that they had been baptized by Paul? In fact, implied in what Paul is saying is this thought, that if I didn't known how you guys were going to react to all this stuff, I would have baptized even fewer than I did. And then Paul makes his <clears throat> definitive statement in verse number 17. Right? But what is he really saying? Verse 16, Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he modifies the proclamation of the gospel, which will become where he goes. Verse number 17 is a little bit of a pivot. Because he's going to take what he's saying in verse number 17 and elaborate upon it in verses 18 through 25. Right? 
Christ didn't send me to baptize. Let's just stop there, folks. Let me ask you a question. Is that true? Is it, is it true in an absolute sense? Well, let me ask you this question. Does not the Great Commission include baptism? Did Christ then send us to baptize? At some level, yes, he did, didn't he? So we'll have to talk about this. Is, is Paul now undoing the Great Commission? Or is Paul trying to make a distinct point under the Great Commission, which is what I think he's doing? For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he modifies that. <clears throat> because this is, right? Because this is going to be, folks, in some way tied to this, not with wisdom of words. Not with wisdom of words. Because if I do that, right? If I don't get the preaching of the cross central, and I don't get the preaching of the cross not only central in its message, but in its methodology, then the cross loses its power. And I think that we have to understand Paul means that the power to the hearer. I mean, the, the cross of Christ saves sinners. So let's just, is Paul minimizing the importance of baptism? I don't think so. But I do think on the basis of this, folks, and of course I've come out of this background, so I'm perhaps a little more sensitive. I do think that Paul would be absolutely aghast at the number of independent Baptist preachers running around keeping meticulous records on who and how many and treating it as some kind of a status symbol and a testament to the success of their ministry. Because while it is true that baptism is a part of the Great Commission, you only baptize those who are believers. You don't baptize anybody to make them a believer. The Great Commission is really very clear. Go into all the world and make disciples. Make disciples grammatically is the main verb of the sentence. Go is a participle. You You have to, in order to make disciples, you have to go find people. And then you have to baptize them once they have become disciples. And then you have to teach them to observe whatever things Jesus has commanded them. Those are participles that are supporting the main idea. And the main idea is to make disciples. How do we make disciples? Folks, this is not an academic question. We're still discussing that in 2022. And there's no shortage of disagreement right here within our fair city of Omaha about what the best way is to make disciples. What's it going to take to make disciples? So Paul is not minimizing baptism, but he is putting it in its rightful location. That the primary task of God, do we understand this, folks? We'll, we'll talk about this because it's inescapable, right? 
is not simply to save the souls of men. If God's only agenda, folks, was simply to save the souls of men, he would just save them. And being God, he would make it so that they all wanted to be saved, so that nobody was walking around going, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't want to be here. But as we will see, folks, in a couple of weeks, God has deliberately and specifically chosen a methodology for saving men that drives them to the dirt. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what God sent him to do. To preach God's gospel, God's way, so that, if I can use this language, so that the real celebrity is Jesus Christ and his cross, not the preacher. Whether it be Apollos, who is mighty in words, or Paul, who is a great writer, but perhaps not a great preacher, or Peter, who appears by every metric we can use to be a very compelling public speaker. He will preach Christ. He will do that without human wisdom, which is what he's getting at, not with wisdom of words. Paul's no fool. But he wants the cross to shine so that its power is never overshadowed by the power or the prestige of men. So, so at this point in the text, folks, and, and issues of whether or not there's Christian liberty in certain things will come up. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 and the extent and nature of what that liberty is and how Paul sees it. Right? But for right now, what Paul has got his fingers on is that this church is fractured over human personality. And in the course of fighting over human personality, the cross of Christ is being diminished. It's being overshadowed by this larger debate. So, right? And again, folks, this is not... Right? I mean, we want to keep this in its framework. Paul is not rebuking them for having favorite preachers. This is not about favorite preachers. This is about factions. This is about fighting over those people as if they are somehow the source of the blessing you receive. Look, if you read Charles Spurgeon, you get a blessing from Charles Spurgeon. In a very real sense, Charles Spurgeon is not the source of that blessing. And if you listen to John MacArthur and you're blessed by John MacArthur, John MacArthur is not the source of that blessing. And if you listen to Jack Hiles and you're blessed spiritually by the ministry of Jack Hiles, Jack Hiles was never the source of that blessing. And to elevate them to some magical status because they have been a blessing to you as if they are somehow superior to others who are inferior, Paul has no toleration for that. All right, I'm going to stop there uh, this evening.
If you want to grab your prayer bulletin.